Guten Morgen, good morning. Please remain standing as you're able for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. I will be reading in German. The English translation will be on the screen. Nun zu der Frage, die ihr mir in eurem Brief gestellt habt. Er sagt, es ist gut für einen Mann, wenn er überhaupt nicht mit einer Frau schläft. Darauf antworte ich, damit niemand zu einem sexuell und moralischen Leben verleitet wird, ist es besser, wenn jeder Mann seine Frau und jede Frau ihren Mann hat. Der Mann soll seine Frau nicht vernachlässigen. Und die Frau soll nicht ihren Mann nicht verziehen. Denn werde die Frau noch der Mann dürfen eigenmächtig über ihren Körper verfügen. Sie gehören ein Anner. Keiner soll sich dem Ehepartner verweigern. Außer beide wollen die eine Zeit lang versichten, um für das Gebet frei zu sein. Danach kommt wieder zusammen, damit euch der Satan nicht in Versuchung führen kann, weil ihr euch nicht enthalten könnt. Wenn ich hier von einem vorübergehenden Versicht schreibe, dann ist das als Zugeständnis an euch gedacht, nicht als Befehl. Ich wünsche zwar, jeder würde wie ich ehelos leben, aber jeder, jeder hat von Gott eine besondere Gabe bekommen, die einen leben nach seinem Willen in der Ehe, die anderen bleiben unverheiratet. Denn Unverheirateten und Verwitwerten rate ich, lieber ledig zu bleiben, wie ich es bin. Wenn ihnen das Alleinsein aber zu schwer fällt, sollen sie heiraten. Denn das ist besser, als von unerfülltem Verlangen verzerrt zu werden. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to gather you with you all uh, this morning again. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in as we lean into God's word. Uh, as usual, kids are dismissed for um, children's church uh, through second grade. If you are taking your kids to children's church, reminder to parents to pick the, the kids up right before or right after you take communion. Um, as I've been mentioning, um, and especially for those that this might be your first Sunday, this is a good FYI for you. We're preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, which means as you go through a book of the Bible, you deal with the things that come up. Uh, the last couple of weeks have been dealing with issues of marriage and singleness. Uh, last week, uh, we dealt with uh, a passage that talked about the body and sex, um, and, and uh, some of you uh, might... I've noticed that maybe you had kids here that were a little squirmish. During that talk, I'm, I'm here to give you uh, this disclaimer, today's sermon doesn't get better in that regard. Um, in fact, when folks were asking me about the passage for today, 
this, and just writing this sermon, I mean, this is probably as close to a sex ed talk that I've ever given here at Trinity. Uh, and it's again, not because like, yay, this is what I wanted to talk about. It, it's what comes up in the text. And uh, when it, this is the type of thing that comes up in the text, this is what comes up. I, I will say that after this, this week, it, it tones down a little bit, but just again, an FYI for parents, uh, I, I'm gonna not say anything explicit. This is gonna be PG-13, it's not gonna be rated R, but just an FYI, we will be we'll talking about some stuff today, all right? Um, before, I, uh, before I pray for the text, I also wanted to open in prayer, especially in light of the topic. Uh, it's not probably the type of thing that you were necessarily um, thinking about this week because in the news, I know a lot of us have had heavy on our hearts the, the war that is in Ukraine. And so I want to not only pray for the sermon uh, to start as I usually do, but I want to say a pastoral prayer uh, and a prayer of lament in light of uh, that heavy reality that I know many of you have been watching and, and it's been a burden for you. Uh, so this will be a slight corporate time to bear that burden with one another. So let's pray. Lord, we ask, as we always do each and every week, that you would open your word to us um, and open our hearts to receive that word. And the other thing, Lord, we want to bring to you is the burden um, that we've been seeing in the news this week. Lord, our hearts break over what we're seeing in this divided world, the war that we are witnessing in Eastern Europe. It fuels our longing for the fulfillment of your scriptures where the wolf will live with the lamb and swords will be turned into shovels. But we ask how long, O oh Lord, and have mercy, King Jesus. We pray for the church, children and citizens who are caught up in the horrors of war. May they take shelter under your wings and your presence. We pray for those in charge of these nations. May their hearts be guided by a true love of peace and not a worldly desire for power. Jesus, hasten the day when all enmity and strife and violence will be gone forever, where there will be no more wars or even rumors of war anymore. That day when all selfishness and racism and tribalism or oppression will be no more. Lord, we want that day to come. Hurry when your glory will cover the earth like water covers the sea. The day when, you, when we will finally and fully love and worship you along with our brothers and sisters from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Until then, Lord, keep us groaning and growing in grace. Grant us quick repentances softer hearts, and a passion for local reconciliation and justice in our own city, even while we long for these things across the globe. May the world recognize us as your people by the way we love one another. Keep us in your purposes until the day the earth is filled with the knowledge of your love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. This is a true story that I know of that happened to a pastor. I once heard from a pastor of a unique situation that popped up when he was starting to do premarital counseling with a couple that he was going to marry. And it was during that first counseling session that the couple came in, sat down with the pastor, and the couple asked the pastor, rather than waiting uh, several months to get to the ceremony, that if the pastor would marry them, that upcoming weekend so that they could get married 
immediately. And that was a shock to this pastor. And you might be asking, well, why did they ask that? Why did they want such a quick marriage? And they quoted a verse from our passage today, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. They said, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is a true story, a real situation that happened. So they said, that's why we need to get married this weekend. We have a verse to back it up. Now, what would you do if you were in that situation? Would you say, well, it's biblical. I better, I better marry him this weekend. Or would you say, no. What would you do? What is an appropriate application of that verse? Were they making an appropriate application of that verse? Well, in this situation, the pastor did not marry him that weekend. He gave a couple of reasons. One was, well, this would create tension with your family that has already put deposits down on wedding venues and spent several thousands of dollars uh, to plan for this. And uh, that's one reason. And the other reason is, from this pastor's point of view, it's a misuse of this text. It's an uh, improper understanding of what is happening and what Paul is addressing. What happened at the end of that scenario, if you're curious, is they did end up finding somebody else to marry him that weekend, and it wasn't this particular pastor. Now, if, if you're finding yourself like thinking, well, why was that a misuse of that text? Is it a misuse of the text? Uh, that's what this type of sermon is for, where we get to lean into 1 Corinthians 7 that deals not only with that particular issue, but many like that. If you think that's a bit on the risky side, there's more and there's different uh, situations that Paul is about to address. And I found myself a lot this week as I was studying the text, thinking about, especially as, I, as I'm understanding the context and what exactly Paul's point is, his principle and what he's trying to do, I, I kept on thinking about these types of stories, and not only this one, but others, where verses in this passage are often misused and misapplied in ways that are completely taken out of context. So we're going to look at all of those. And first, we're going to consider what is the problem? What is the issue that Paul is addressing? We want to understand that. And then look at the many pastoral ways that he guides these different scenarios. And along the way, I think it will be important for me to address, uh, as I did in my opening example, how the, these verses are often misused and misapplied when they're taken out of context. So let's start with what is the issue that Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 7. Look at verses 1 through 2. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have, a, have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. So here Paul is responding likely to a letter that was written by this church to Paul, and he's quoting from the letter, or maybe he's trying to summarize what one of their views uh, is, and he wants to deal with that view. And so the view that he is tackling is this one. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is something that some people in the church of Corinth believed. And Paul's about to show that he does not endorse this view. So what is the view? What is the issue? What is the problem? We saw last week that there's some folks in the church that believe that I have freedom to do whatever I want with my body. But there's other group of people that say, well, actually, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman ever. People within the church believe that it was better, it was more holy to be celibate. That's the general principle that they had. 
And we don't have all the details of what's probably behind that belief, but it would probably sound something like this, that they believe that God only cares about the spiritual aspect of life, and sex is more of an act that's associated with this present world. After all, one day soon, Jesus is going to come back, he's going to wrap up history, and in that day there will no longer be sex anymore, and people will not be given over to marriage, uh, because those are relationships and that's an act that belongs to this present time but not in the new heavens and new earth and maybe some even people would point to paul and say hey paul you're not married and you i've even heard you say that that you are celibate and not married because you can commit more time to the gospel so therefore they conclude because of all these things it's better not to have sex so the background also makes sense when he writes but since there's sexual immorality occurring that that's an added issue that's happening behind the scenes. Although many people are probably saying that it's better not to have sex, what's really occurring is that people within the Church of Corinth are having sex in immoral ways. We've already considered a couple of those examples. A man is sleeping with his stepmom, and people are going to the temple to sleep with prostitutes in the Church of Corinth. And these relationships outside of marriage are not meant for sexual intimacy. That's a point that Paul has made. And when these relationships become sexualized, injustice and hurt and pain will occur. And that's why Paul dealt with the theology of the body last week. He calls us to honor him with our bodies and that God created marriage to be a relationship where two become one flesh through covenant and the act of sex. But here Paul is addressing another issue. Not only are some folks trying to stay committed to their principle of celibacy, but it's being applied within marriage too. And it's being applied in a way to avoid marriage. And it's being applied as a reason to justify divorce. That's how the folks that believe in this principle are seeking to apply it in different situations. So that's the problem. And now Paul is going to try to maneuver through each one of those situations to try to push back on this idealistic view of purity with what Scripture really teaches. Let's look at how he does that in verses 2 through 6 when he addresses marriage specifically. He says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sex sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not, deprave one do not deprive one another, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because you lack self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. So here's Paul's main point that he's, he's dealing with the pushback on their idea. They believe it's good not to have sex and they're applying it to marriage. And Paul is saying that is a, not an appropriate application of the call of celibacy. In marriage, Paul says, sex is good and it honors God. And how does Paul make this point? If you follow the verses, he says that husband and wife have a commitment to fulfill with one another. Marriage is fundamentally a covenant between a husband and wife where they make promises to one another. And one of those commitments is that two people become one through the act of sex. In other words, sexual intimacy is part of the nature 
of Christian marriage. That's what Paul is saying. And he starts making this point further in verse 4 where he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. And you're like, whoa, buddy, whoa. You don't just say stuff like that out loud, but you have to see that he's even-handed. He goes on to the next verse and says this applies to the husband. And one of the things you'll see throughout this text is this kind of mutuality that Paul continues to say. This applies to the wife, and this applies to the husband. This applies to the husband, this applies to the wife. And it makes sense that he's doing that because in Paul's mind, this is the nature of covenantal marriage in the Christian faith. The two become one flesh, and now they are looking out and concerned and caring about the other. This equal exhortation makes sense because of the nature of marriage and why it's this theology of becoming one flesh. For example, I've said this before, when you're married and if you're cold, you should be equally concerned if your spouse is cold and you get some blankets for that person as well. If you're hungry, then you're equally concerned about whether or not your spouse is hungry and you get that person a snack as well. This is how practically this one flesh theology is flushed out within marriage where a husband and wife serve and care for one another because the two have become one. And Paul is now applying that same logic to sexual intimacy in order to correct a spouse who might be saying it's good not to have sex even with my spouse. Paul says that's not the nature of marriage, to deprive one another of sexual intimacy. But he makes a concession. Did you see that? He says, unless, and here's the concession, you both agree, not just one person, but you both agree to refrain from sex for a season. They both have to be in, in an understanding to do that, and they do it for a short period of time. And why is that? He says, because the lack of self-control resulting in sexual sin. So likely what's occurring in the context, if we're reading it, is a person is saying to his spouse, for example, let's stop having sex. Let's be celibate because it pleases the Lord. But then he goes off because of temptation to the temple and sleeps with prostitutes. And remember, this is what Paul is dealing with. Folks within the congregation may be saying that they're refraining from sex, but in reality, they're unable to control their impulses and therefore are having sex in ways that are improper. So here's the main point. Let's wrap this up before I go to some misapplications. It's not appropriate, Paul says, to apply the principle, it's good not to have sex, to marriage, the marriage relationship, because the marriage relationship is ordered towards the two becoming one flesh. A husband and a wife doesn't just look out for oneself, but rather seeks to honor serve and care for the other in all areas of life, including intimacy. So knowing that, 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 that this is what Paul is dealing with and that is the point that he's making, hopefully helps you see some ways that this, these verses are often misapplied. And I want to lay out three like real-life scenarios where I've seen these verses misapplied or misunderstood. The first one. It's often misapplied because it's made to be just a male issue, that it's the male that is the one that wants to be intimate, but then uh, the wife is the one that's resisting. And in pastoral ministry and throughout church history, that's simply just not the case. A wife can also experience her husband being emotionally and physically distant from her, and that he is chasing some sort of ideal outside of marriage that's causing the relationship to lose affection and emotional attachment. 
Uh, one of the examples, just so you know that this isn't just, this isn't just uh, how modern uh, people and, and, and church folks think about this. I was reading some of uh, the commentaries and somebody quoted a church father from the early, uh, uh, early, early church named Origen, and he was providing counsel in light of this scripture to a man who thinks it's not a big deal to withhold intimacy from his wife. And this is what Origen, early church history, writes. He says, quote, you are not hurting her, you say, but claiming that you can be chaste and live more purely. But look at how your poor wife is being destroyed as a result, because she is unable to endure your so-called purity. You should sleep with your wife, not for your sake, but for hers. So it's not just a male issue. That's one way that it's misunderstood and misapplied. Another way is that this the principles of these, this text cannot necessarily be applied to every situation of sexual frustration within a marriage. This text assumes that a husband and wife are capable of being intimate with one another, but they're just choosing not to because of this ideal of purity and celibacy that they're applying to marriage in an unbiblical way. Paul wouldn't necessarily give the, give the same advice to a different type of situation or a different type of problem. So let me give you an example. I've heard other folks that look at this and say, hey, uh, they shouldn't deprive one, another, deprive one another of sex, so that means I have the higher sex drive, so therefore that my spouse needs to keep up and have sex with me whenever I want to. The problem with using this verse to make that application is that Paul isn't dealing with that issue. That's not the problem that he's tackling. That's not the thing that he's unpacking. He's unpacking this, this application of celibacy within marriage. He's not taking on the issue that one person within marriage wants to have sex more frequently than the other person. If Paul was taking on that situation, you could take the principles of what Paul is unpacking here and apply it to a different way. It means he would probably tell such a person that brought his concern, that concern to him not to make marriage and sex one-sided. It's not just about what you need. If you feel like you have a higher sex drive than your spouse, then maybe ask the question, is it unrealistically high? Are you putting expectations on your spouse that aren't acceptable and holy and good? Have you actually done the tough work of really trying to figure out why the both of you are not in sync with intimacy? Or here's another example of... Um, using a different situation of sexual frustration and misapplying this text. Let me give you another example. So sometimes intimacy within marriage is frustrated, uh, not due because of this kind of purity idea, but it's due to psychological or physical difficulties. Sometimes intimacy is frustrated in marriage because one spouse is dealing with severe trauma associated with sex. Or maybe someone is struggling with depression or maybe sex is painful. I've heard these verses quoted in situations like this out of context to say to somebody, that spouse that might be experiencing these things, you shouldn't deprive me from sex, just do it. But that again is a abuse of these verses to that situation. Again, Paul is not giving pastoral advice to these specific issues. It's this ideal of celibacy that's being misapplied to marriage. That's what he's dealing with. He's not dealing with all these other problems that I gave you as an example. Paul would likely give different advice. 
He would probably still say sex is a good thing within marriage. And if it's not going well, then be patient with one another. Love one another and find some help. And one of the things I want to say in this point uh, before I move on to the third example is just if this is resonating with anybody here, just to know that it is very common, very common to struggle with intimacy within marriage. And if that's your situation, the best pastoral advice that I would give you, based on some of the principles we find here, is to be patient with one another, and especially this, to seek help. Don't try to figure this out by yourself. Talk to a counselor, talk to your doctor, talk to a trusted mentor or friend, lean into it, be patient with one another, care for one another, while you seek help, support, and wise counsel. All right, last example I'll give before we go on to some of these other verses. It's not an appropriate application to blame your spouse if you succumb to sexual immorality. That's another way that I've seen these verses used and abused within relationships. These verses are often quoted to say, hey, my sexual addiction or my adultery is because you're not intimate enough with me and you, and you pass the blame on to your spouse. And again, I keep coming back to this issue. You're going you're to hear this over and over again. Is that the problem that Paul is dealing with? No. You're importing a different problem into what Paul is dealing with, and he would likely, again, give you different advice if that was the issue that he addresses in the first verse of chapter 7. The immorality is happening again within marriage here because they're importing an, un an ideal of celibacy into the relationship of marriage and it doesn't belong there. Now, if you went to Paul and you said something like, I look at porn or I cheated on my spouse because he or she isn't intimate enough with me, he'd correct your unbiblical view of sex and marriage. He'd say to you that marriage isn't about your needs but your spouse's needs as well and that you made a commitment and a covenant with this person. In addition, don't impose, he would probably say, worldly sexual expectations on your spouse. He would say, flee sexual immorality. Seek to crucify your flesh with all of its unholy impulses. Repent, ask for forgiveness, and seek help from others. That's what he would likely say to that situation. So once we understand what the problem actually is and how Paul is dealing with it, then we have clarity on these types of principles to be able to tackle other problems and not take these verses out of context and use them in abusive ways. But Paul doesn't only deal with the situation of how this ideal is being applied to marriage. There's another one that he deals with in verses 7 through 9. Let's look at those. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widow, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Paul isn't married himself. And you see here, and there will be some uh, verses a little bit later in this chapter, that he's not necessarily a fan of being married. He actually recommends it, and he gives uh, some details uh, uh, later that, that say why. Uh, and this passage is actually what leads many people and commentators and, and people in church history to believe that Paul may have been married at one point, but he's a widower. However, we don't know that for sure because the passage is likely addressing not only widowers and widows, but also those that are just unmarried in general, not just those who have lost a spouse. 
But regardless, Paul is now dealing with a different situation. Uh, and this is a situation where, again, this group of people that believe it's not good to have sex, and now they're applying it to the situation of one who is single or widowed. And he says that each has a gift from God. In other words, not everybody is called to the same marital status or experience. Some never marry and others do. God has a different calling and different gifts for his people, and that's a good and beautiful and a diverse thing. So if you're single or a widow and are called to celibacy, Paul says that's good. But if you meet someone and you're drawn to that person, then it's good to get married. Don't avoid marriage, he would say, to chase this ideal of celibacy or this ideal that is more holy not to get married so that you could avoid sex. If you meet somebody and it's a, and it's a good person to marry, marry and you have that connection and you have that passion, Paul says, lean into that and accept your calling and accept that as a good gift from God and get married. You're, you're not sinning, you're not doing something that's subpar in terms of holiness. So that's what Paul is dealing with here. Now this passage also has been misapplied. One of the ways is the way that I opened the sermon with, and I, I gave you a specific situation where this really was a passage, a verse that was quoted in order to uh, justify getting married quickly because the couple couldn't keep their hands off one another, right? So that's one of the ways that this is applied. So I already kind of showed my cards that I agreed with that pastor that that wasn't an appropriate application of this text. A godly sexual draw towards marriage is a good thing. And if you have that towards an individual, then it's good to marry that person. But marriage involves more than passion. It involves bringing in your extended family to the conversation and sometimes asking for hands in marriage. It means organizing a public ceremony to witness the, this covenant union. It, it, has, it has this broader implication. And just because you can't control your sexual impulses doesn't mean that you just find somebody to marry quickly, no matter who they are, what character that they have, and whether or not your parents and family and friends agree that it's a good idea. That is not a good way to apply this verse. Marriage and that draw to be married definitely includes passion, but you have to take all of Scripture and apply it to the situation because that's not the only factor in play. There's other things to consider, the person's faith, and we'll see that a little bit later in this passage, the person's character, uh, whether or not you're, you're, the wisdom of the community around you thinks that this marriage is a good thing. So you can't just quote this verse and say, I gotta get married right away, like who, who, who's ready? Who's around me that can do this because you can't control your sexual impulses? Another way this is misapplied. If you can't control yourself to unbiblical sexual impulses, then sometimes this verse is applied to say, well, then marriage will finally cure me. I have all these unhealthy sexual impulses, so the way that I'm going to deal with it is I'm just going to get married. All right? Let me go back to the, the drum that I keep beating here. Is that the situation that Paul is addressing? No, he's not dealing with it. That's how you could become a good exegete, right? Is he dealing with that's not the problem that he quotes at the beginning? That's not the problem. So when you deal with something like this, okay, this is a different problem, and there might be principles here that Paul has that applies to this situation, and then you have to do the hard work of taking all of Scripture 
to apply to that situation. So if somebody comes to you and says, look, I got, I got these sexual impulses. I don't know what to do with them. I'm expressing them in unhealthy ways. So I'm just going to get married because that's going to save me from these immoral sexual impulses. That is not what Paul would recommend, nor is that what he is saying in this situation. If you went to Paul and said that, what he would likely tell you is you need to control your desires and be a person of holiness and character. Don't idolize sex or make marriage or your spouse into some sort of savior that's going to free you from these things. Sex and marriage are good, but you don't get married for yourself, but in order to lay down your life for another person. And it sounds like that's not what you're after here, but something else. That's how Paul would address that situation. Now Paul moves on to some other pastoral situations, and there's about three of them here, but they all are associated with separating from a spouse. Look at verses 10 through 11. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So Paul goes back to married folks, and now he's dealing with someone who might be saying this, well, if I can't be celibate in marriage, well, then it's better just to separate or to divorce if this is the way that I'm supposed to act within marriage. I just want to avoid it altogether, again, to chase this purity ideal. And a couple of things stand out here in how Paul addresses it. First, he, this is the first time that, and only time that he doesn't use the both and language of husband and wife. Did you notice that? And I would just say quickly that it is best not to read too much into that because of the context, he's been doing it the whole time. So he's probably writing in a way that it's assumed at this point. The other thing that sticks out is the parentheses as the NIV translates it. He says that what he's about to say is the Lord's command. In other words, this is something that Jesus taught about directly, that Jesus address this issue. And what did he teach? Jesus taught not to separate or divorce your spouse for just any reason that you want. You can read this in the Gospels. He gives the example of adultery as a legitimate reason to divorce, but often people divorce for reasons that are not permitted. And so if a separation occurs due to an illegitimate reason for divorce, then the goal, Jesus would teach, is reconciliation, not separation. Knowing that Jesus taught these things, Paul is saying that it directly applies to the situation that he's dealing with. He's saying that leaving your spouse because you want to be celibate is not legitimate grounds for divorce. That's what Paul is saying here. And then Paul deals with the situation not directly addressed by the Lord. Look at verses 12 through 16. He says, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul here is saying he's not aware 
that Jesus taught or dealt with this specific situation directly. And so now Paul is going to do his best to apply all of Scripture and the framework of Scripture to this unique situation. And this is probably not theoretical for him. I mean, planting a church is messy. I could imagine what it would be like to plant a church in a city like Corinth, where there was never, ever historical Christian presence at all. You're going there, and you're seeing these situations where somebody preaches the gospel to somebody, and that person comes to the Lord, but the spouse remains in unbelief. And that's the issue at hand right? That, that, that is probably happening, that he's thinking about and knowing scenarios where this is taking place. And now, because of the principle that he's tackling, it may be that there's some in the congregation that says, well, this is my situation. I believe he or she doesn't. I want to be celibate, so maybe this is legitimate grounds for divorce and separation because my spouse does not believe in the gospel. And so, again, they're looking for a way out, a way to justify living in celibacy rather than fulfilling marital duties of intimacy. So that's what ha- that Paul has in mind here. And Paul is saying that that is not a legitimate grounds for separation or divorce. In fact, if that happens, the goal is to reconcile one another. But then Paul goes further, and you see he spends a little bit more time explaining why. He says, a reason to stay with an unbelieving spouse who is willing to, to work it out, to, willing to stay committed to you, is that in that situation, the spouse may be made holy or sanctified through your salvation, through the work of redemption in the gospel in your life. Now, why is Paul making that point? Remember, because of this unrealistic ideal of purity, Paul is addressing people that is saying stuff like it's not good to have sex even in marriage. And this same mindset likely would consider being married to an unbelieving spouse as something that's, that would defile you. That's, it would be something that's unholy. Not just being intimate, but also being married in a relationship with an unbeliever, likely from this framework, is something that should be avoided because it's unholy. But Paul says the reverse is true. Your salvation in Christ makes the marriage sanctified, and this extends to your children too, he says. In this situation, he says, allow the power of the gospel to transform the relationship rather than pursuing some unbiblical purity ideal. As Paul asks, how do you know that God's grace will not save your spouse? And Paul makes this exception then, however. He says, if the believer is exhorted to stay, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married, that's a good thing. If you both are on the same page, we're going to make the marriage work, then stay. But what if the unbelieving spouse abandons the relationship? And here is where Paul says, let it be so. If this takes place, then separation or divorce is permitted. Now, before I go on to verse 17, and that's how we'll conclude the sermon, let me pause with one more misapplication of this text. And it's often uh, misapplied in this scenario called missionary dating where somebody uh, falls in love or has a draw to somebody, but that person's a believer, and you're hesitant, you know, like, oh, that person doesn't really know the Lord, doesn't love Jesus, but you know what? 
I've, I think I got this. I'm going to convert that person, and if I can just date that person, eventually that person will become a Christian, and they would quote this verse to justify it because, hey, this is what Paul is saying uh, to the, this, this, this scenario where somebody is married and one person comes to the Lord and the other person doesn't. Hey, just stick with it because you're going to save the person. And so then people take this verse and apply it to dating. Here's the problem. Paul, 1 Corinthians 7.39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes. But then what does he say? But he must belong to the Lord. So again, this is another situation where we have to be careful applying a verse to a situation that Paul isn't dealing with. This is a situation where the couple is already married, not a situation where you're considering who to marry. In that situation, Paul gives different pastoral counsel. And some, I know they, the, the pushback I've heard over the years is, what's, what's the big deal? Like, what's the big deal if you date somebody that doesn't know the Lord? What's the big deal if you marry somebody that doesn't know the Lord? And I remember some remarks by author Kathy Keller where she gave three reasons why Paul and the scriptures don't ever advise you to marry somebody who doesn't know the Lord. And they, they are as follows. One thing that might happen is you might be tempted to push Christ to the margins of your life in order to make the marriage work. That's a pressure that many people who marry somebody that doesn't know the Lord feel. But it also goes both ways, and sometimes we don't think about it from the other perspective. Maybe you stay committed to the Lord. Maybe you stay on fire for the Lord. But that also marginalizes your spouse who isn't there, who doesn't want to have a life full of Bible study and going to church and isn't sure if, they, if, the person, uh, if you should baptize your kids or to see that they take communion. And so even if you stay committed to the faith, then that will end up marginalizing your unbelieving spouse as well. And these factors combined lead to unnecessary stress in marriage that could break up the marriage, or maybe they stick it out and they stay together, but one person, one, one person in the marriage has to set to the side a core part of who they really are. And that's why it is good to avoid it if you're dating. But in this situation, Paul is dealing with this happening in a, in a relationship where they are already married. Now, at this point, uh, you might be thinking, man, Paul is one of the most inconsistent Christians I've ever seen. Like, what principle is he even operating with? Because he seems to be all over the place, that with singles, he gives this advice. With married people, he gives this advice. He gives a concession here, uh, but not here. And then he's okay with this exception over here and not over there. And Paul, fortunately, in verse 17, tells us his main principle that he's operating with. Look at that, look at that verse with me. Paul writes, nevertheless, each person, person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all churches. All right, let's review then. How, do, how is this the principle? Paul is dealing with this unrealistic purity ideal that related to sex and marriage that is causing people to leave their relationships, to leave their commitment to pursue this ideal. That's the situations that he's dealing with. And he is saying it's wrong to be motivated by this unrealistic view of perfection or purity. Paul's advice is to remain in the relationship or the situation that you are in when God has saved you. 
God saved you within your current uh, situation for a reason. And rather than leaving this situation that you find yourself in when you come to the Lord to chase some weird vision of purity or perfection, Paul says, stay where you're at and see if the gospel can redeem your relationships and the environment around you. That's the principle that Paul is operating here with. And it's a gospel principle. The goal of the gospel isn't perfection. The goal of the gospel is redemption. You don't chase some type of purist ideal and then leave in your wake a bunch of relationships that you, you turn your back on or, 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 or situations that are broken or are unideal, but rather than staying there and seeing how God and the power of the gospel can redeem them, you just turn your back on those things because of this unrealistic calling to perfection and purity. Jesus says, stay where you're at. It's not always pretty. It's not always ideal, but God is not in the, the, the business of trying to make things perfect, but he is in the ideal of trying to make them redeemed and renewed and restored. And so that means, and this is why it's such an important principle to end in, because you can hear a sermon like this, and you can think about your past, and you can think about the decisions you made in your life or like uh, things that you regret, and you can just be caught up on like, man, even these principles and these, this advice that Paul has given, that hasn't been me. I've made bad choices. I've hurt a lot of people. And you can beat yourself up because this ideal of purity and perfection that you lay on yourself, it just creates this burden of guilt. But one of the things that Paul is operating with, with this principle of the gospel, is that is not how you should feel in your situation. As you look at your past and you look at your current situation, as, 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 as many things that you have done wrong and as many things that have been broken in your relationships and around your life, the power of the gospel gives you this hope. He can redeem you where you're at, not when you, where you think you ought to have been. So let the power of the gospel bring forgiveness and renewal and restoration to the mess that you're in right now. That's the principle that Paul is operating with.